Good morning, class. That's morning spelled with a U because we have pun here. (laughs) I'm Andy Sell. Thank you for listening to Ghoul School, a horror history podcast here on the Unpops Network. If you have a second and you know that you like this show from previous experience, why don't you take this opportunity to go rate and review wherever you get this podcast. If you have not listened to the show, I don't expect you to rate right now. You You can wait and see if you like it. Hopefully you do. Folks, I'm going to level with you. It was not an easy task finishing this episode. There were difficulties. There were ordeals, including but not limited to the loss of roughly half an hour of audio from the beginning of the conversation today, which is a bummer because you know, we did try to make it up, but you know how it is. The first time you have a conversation like this, there's there's like discovery and spontaneity in it, and it's, it's hard to recreate that. But I don't want to give you the wrong idea. I'm happy about this episode. I think we have a really great conversation. I am a little biased, but I l- literally love uh, the guest today for this extra dreaded episode. It's Taylor Gonda, my partner, who I share a home and a life with and a cat. And I haven't had her on the show before because she's not a horror fan. She doesn't really watch horror movies, but I'm really happy that certain planets aligned to put me in a position that we had to record together. Because it gives me an opportunity, I think, to make a connection here for maybe people that don't watch a lot of horror movies, but do listen to this show. I know there are some of you. So maybe you'll feel a little represented here today. Taylor was formerly the co-producer and co-host of the podcast These Things Matter, which ran for five years, and it's a really good show. The All the episodes are archived somewhere. You can listen to them online somewhere if you search for These Things Matter, including an episode that I was on discussing Ray Bradbury. The film that Taylor chose was Stanley Kubrick's 1980 masterpiece, The Shining, adapted from the novel by Stephen King. Now, the film that I assigned her was 1963's The Haunted Palace, directed by Roger Corman, starring Vincent Price and Lon Chaney Jr., adapted from the short story The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft and kind of The Haunted Palace, the poem by Edgar Allan Poe, by Corman and Charles Beaumont. So here's the conversation between me and Taylor Gonda about The Shining and The Haunted Palace. Okay, so... Taylor Gonda. Hi, Andy. Hi, welcome. Again, mm-hmm. should we... I'm going to tell the yeah. listener what happened. Yeah. We lost the first 20... This episode <laughs> has been a series of obstacles. I won't get into all of it. 
Because whatever, who cares? Because ultimately you get to talk to me and that's nice. Yeah, that's terrific. Wonderful. <laughs> Again, I get to talk to you twice. <laughs> yes. We Lucky recorded. Me. Yeah, to clarify, we recorded 20 minutes, right? Uh, a little under half an hour yeah. of, of audio we lost. But it's okay. Yeah, let's, let's recap, I guess, what the listener missed. Because we can't recreate that magic. No, no. But that's we lightning said, in a bottle. It's true. It is true. But we said some cool things, so we want to make sure we st- we yeah. stay those cool things again. We joked about me saying welcome yeah. because it's, Cause it's our, our apartment. Our place, yeah. Yeah. So w- that's out of the way. Right, we did that. It was very funny. Hilarious. Yeah. And then, well, we talked about, I guess the key things are that you don't watch horror movies. Generally speaking, no. And then we talked about the, started to talk we, about we the two movies we're going to do. talk about The Shining, yeah. But I guess we should just talk about why you don't watch horror movies yeah yeah we'll get into it i mean yeah. here's the thing i've talked i've told this to many many people because when people hear i'm dating you and then i don't watch horror movies it's a subject that comes up like what <laughs> yeah what do you mean yeah so no people don't share each other's likes entirely yeah. and i'm not one of those horror fans that's like how dare you not watch horror movies yeah you know, i get i understand as mm-hmm. a sensitive person with anxieties, etc., yes. I understand. Yes, I just get too wrapped up in the movie. Yep, and my rational brain goes away, and then I can't sleep, and I have nightmares, and it gets it just I see you know that thing where like you see an image and then it it keeps flashing into yeah. your brain yeah. when you don't want it to. It's that there are certain horror movies I saw when I was a kid that will sometimes just pop up and flash in my brain. I'll be. Like, <gasps> You know, I don't, yeah. I don't want that. I don't See, need that. I have that, but it's with real life. Right. Yeah. This <laughs> it's is real where, life gets into my head. Right. I'm scared by things that you really shouldn't be scared by. And you're scared by things that like, yeah, you probably should be scared by those yeah. things. But you're also, I mean, I don't know. It could be an empathetic thing. You know, you, yeah. you relate to people on screen. I get real caught up. Yeah. You get, you get caught up in things. And Which I've, is... I think I've said before, the only way I'm going to get over this is if I am on the set of a horror movie <laughs> and we're creating the creature yeah, and blood is happening and things are, and it's just like, you know, my, my good buddy Joe is the, is the effects guy and I'll be like, oh yeah, look at that. I mean, I know that's happening. I know that's true, but it's just somehow like, I mean, I, I used to do theater and I would watch theater and I would be completely disassociated because I'd be analyzing the whole thing. Yeah. I just can't do that with movies. Huh. It's, you just can't, you don't have the buffer. There's not a, there's not a distance. Not when it yeah. comes to the emotion of fear. Yeah. Fear <laughs> just triggers complete irrationality in me. But it's okay. What I do watch, what you introduce me to, yeah. generally speaking, is good. I enjoy it. I'm happy to watch it. I'm glad that I have some idea of what's going on in horror. And you're pretty good about knowing what I can handle, and so it's like it's like I have my own curator of horror, basically. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm fine with that. You watch a lot more horror movies now, oh, because of me exponentially. I think I have had watched somewhere between like ten and twenty horror movies in my whole life, leading up to <laughs> us dating, and now it's probably more like forty. 30 or 40, would you say? Yeah, that you're at a total? Yeah. Yeah. Probably? I don't know. It's hard to say. I don't know what the total is, but it's definitely a lot more. Because I also... But you watch, you've watched thousands. I, yeah, I don't know. I've watched probably about uh, about 20 new ones a month. Yeah. 
just of stuff I haven't seen before. Yeah. But I also like, you know, your exposure to horror movies has increased. I have like, I've gotten good at, like you said curating. That's yeah. interesting because yeah. I also curate, I self curate now too. I have like three tiers of movies that I can watch when you're home. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to be really aware of what I'm putting on. And there are movies that like, the first tier is movies that I can watch just with you home, sound on, Mm -hmm. no problem. I can have it on while you're awake, while you're doing stuff in the house, and it's fine. Yeah. And then there's another tier of movies that like, I can play, but I gotta have the I gotta have headphones on because the sound would be too much. Right, for you. I, I I tend to have a problem with the sound first and foremost. Yeah, and then there's the movies that like you have to be asleep. Yeah, or or I'm at work or something. Yeah, or you're at where you just, just can't, can't, be, in can't be in the house. Yeah, I'm glad that I I can come home and I I'm like oh yeah something is not gonna be on that it will like scar me for life. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm glad about that. Yeah, I'm like I'm sensitive to your sensitivity. <laughs> I, I understand, and I don't want to like. Yeah. I don't want to create a hostile living environment for yeah. you. Well, unlike certain characters in the movies yeah. we're going to talk I, about, I honestly feel bad sometimes when I have certain DVDs sitting out, just because I'm <laughs> like, oh, the cover art well, might be. At a different point in my life, certain cover arts, yeah, I, I, you know, going to that blockbuster could be very precarious in terms of my level of horror. Just walking around a blockbuster and looking at covers. There's a lot of horrible covers. You would say <laughs> yeah, yeah. you would say wonderful covers. Yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah, I would say, yeah. ooh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So what's interesting to me then is that you chose, considering your aversion to horror movies, the one you chose is not shocking necessarily because it is one of those movies that has like, it's got crossover appeal. It's yeah. like, it's a household name horror movie. Yeah, it's one that non-horror movie fans yeah. will watch. Yeah, it's sure. it's got a prestige to it. It has a there's you know, it doesn't have the stigma of mm-hmm. horror mm-hmm. to it. It's really. not like low class in some way. Yeah. yeah. And it has it's one of those movies that like obnoxious people would say, <laughs> "Well, I don't even consider it a horror movie." Yeah, those are very obnoxious yeah. people. Like the genre somehow has stink on it, you know, whatever. It's it is one of those. It's one of those elevated, transcendent, quote unquote, horror movies that it's like Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers in that like you don't have to be a football fan, you know who that is. Yeah. Right? You mm-hmm. know these and that's the shining. You don't have to be a horror fan, you know the shining. Right. So it is a popular one. But it's interesting that it's your choice to me because it is one of the few horror movies that I would still consider genuinely scary. Oh, it's very like scary. it is a it is a horrifying horror movie. It's like very very scary. Yes, terrifying. I think that in places. Yes, because it is so saturated into the culture. Like every moment of the movie has been parodied or saturated. Or if you've never seen it, you you. You could probably tell the say you know many major moments from the plot because of all of the times that it is in pop culture. If that weren't the case, it would it would still really scare me. But it's almost like first of all, I've seen it. I saw it as a as a fifteen year old at a sleepover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't see as all of it because I closed my eyes for a lot of it. That first time you saw it, like what was your reaction at the time? I remember being very worried because. It's one of those movies when you're a kid that people are like, oh, this is the scariest movie ever yeah. made. 
People say that. Especially if you're that age. Yes. Like you've started, you, you're talking to people about movies by yeah. that age. Yeah. So you've heard things about movies. When I saw that movie, I was probably young enough that I was still just like, oh, cool cover. But you're at an age where you know about movies. So it has a reputation that's been communicated to you. Yeah. It was a, a slumber party of girls that I was friends with, but I was never very secure in my friendships in high school. I So I really wanted to be a part of the thing. Like I wanted to be with the cool kids and this is what the cool kids were doing. So I wanted to do what they did. And, and at this point, I did not have my sort of like, I don't do horror movies kind of thing. I was like, yeah, sure. You're still figuring out what you like. Even yeah. though five years before that, I was at a slumber party and they watched Gremlins, the new batch. And I and I had to leave. <laughs> gremlins to the new batch when was those, too much for you. When those little baby gremlins are being born out of his back, yeah. I had to get the hell out of there. Yeah, you, I had to leave. You don't like creatures don't and like creatures. transformation and goo. Like those are the like the body horror and you know otherworldly. That's aliens the stuff. and creatures. No, yeah. thank you. No, thank you. I'm yeah. good. I don't need to know that. I mean, my brain is already on the verge of being scared of those things regularly mm-hmm. i don't need it in film like yeah oh you're scared of this well here's a really specific version of it <laughs> that that special effects people really get off on making extremely gooey and and liquidy and disgusting how about that you know that's, that's i love not it for me i know you do. i love it it's all that's i love it so much so the shining is not that no the shining is not that yeah, yeah. like so yeah i was after that gremlins incident <laughs> i should have known that I probably just shouldn't watch horror movies. But, you know, I was trying to be cool. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, my friend who was, like, super Christian, <laughs> this was the one she wanted to watch. It was like, we'll, so watch, funny. we'll watch Labyrinth, and then we'll watch The Shining, <laughs> I think was the, the might have been. That's that's an interesting double feature yeah. programming call. Yeah. That's wild. It is. Also, I can't get over this religious kid who's like, yeah, The Shining. <laughs> I guess because it's not... It's not demons. There's not Satan. I guess there's yeah. not. Well, I I don't know. I don't know what how it got past the whoever it got past to let us do this, but we watched it. And I again, there was so much of it that I, upon this viewing that I just had, I did not remember because most of the time You're anything <laughs> anything even remotely going to be scary, I was covering my eyes. <laughs> And that's just what I do. So there's just huge like chunks. Oh just yeah, that you're like, oh, I never saw that before. Yeah, none of it. Like my memory of it is, it does. There's no plot that makes sense. It's just kind of <laughs> scenes. It's just okay. like visual moments. I really viscerally remember this room though. It was in like a like a wood paneled basement kind of room with these other gals. Were they all? Was everybody like suitably freaked out? Was there anybody that was like, I'm the tough kid. I'm not scared. No, I think everybody was pretty pretty scared <laughs> i think i definitely did not watch at all the scene with the the naked woman i think everybody was yeah. definitely like like squealing Ugh. a lot at that i mean it is it is rel- it is pretty tame you yeah know, in terms of what actually happens well yeah and she's she's scary oh she's super scary like even before she transforms it was interesting on this watch especially being like yeah she's not like it's just a naked lady yeah, there's well, nothing like seductive what, about her. Right, it's like what you're focused on is his face. Yeah, is the change in his face. Oh, yeah. That's that's what that scene is about, and it's hor- That that's the terror. That's the horrifying part. 
is yeah. how excited he is at this yeah, completely like, random oh, person. Look at this. And she but I mean, this is where you see the house or the, the, the hotel putting its yeah. mitts into mm-hmm. Jack. Like, yeah. this is how it is seducing him into doing its bidding. You yeah. know, that it knows that here's what he'll want. He'll want alcohol. He'll want, like, somebody to talk to, like the bartender. He'll want a lady he could potentially fuck. These are the things that'll like bring him on our side so we can get him to do what he want or what, what we want him to do, you know. Oh, Jack. What, why did you choose it? It is still surprising to me. I rewatched it recently by myself when you were gone. And the fact I knew that it was weird that I was watching a horror movie without you. You're watching a <laughs> horror movie. This is so weird. You were watching a horror movie alone mm-hmm. at, night at night without me. Yep. Gosh, I'm so proud. <laughs> I'm just so proud. <laughs> well, it's it's a couple things. I remember liking the parts of The Shining that I could remember as a 15-year-old. <laughs> it sticks in your brain, you know? And well, then yeah. also the podcast Blank Check has been doing a Kubrick bit. So it was like The Shining was the next one coming up. So I was like, oh, I could watch it for that. But really it was also like it's so in the zeitgeist that I forgot what the actual movie was like, Mm -hmm. like apart from all of that. Yeah. And so I wanted to watch it and I'm really glad I did. Apart from doing this show, this podcast, I just wanted to watch it. It's a, I mean, (laughs) I'm saying an incredibly not at all unique thing, but it is an incredible movie. Yeah. It is an amazing movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It's, It's, uh, you know, it's it's like most, yes, it's like most of these sorts of quote unquote, like cultural touchstone masterpieces. Everybody loves it's even better than people say it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like so yeah. often people are like, oh my God, it's the most amazing. It's like, no, you're not even capturing why it's so great. Yeah. And I guess what drew me in initially, drew me in again, the visuals, the colors, the cinematography, the steady cam work, which I did not know anything about until recently that it was like one of the first uses of the steady cam. And the other, the other factor that I forgot is like, oh yeah, it's set in Colorado. And you and I both have Colorado connections. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I grew up there for the first 17 years of my life. And then I went back and lived in Denver for 11 years. Like, I lived there most of my life, basically. So, yeah, the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, which you have a mug from, mm-hmm. is a place that most Coloradans will visit at some point in their life. And it's the place where Stephen King stayed, right? Yes. That inspired him to write the book. Yeah, he was wanting a break from writing about Maine. And so him and his wife went on vacation and he, I think the story is he opened a road atlas and just put his finger down randomly without looking and then looked and it was like near Boulder, Colorado. So he was like, all right, that's where I'm going. And then they went and stayed. And I guess like the first night they stayed there, he came up with most of the idea for this, for the shining, for the novel, the the skeleton, the story, at least. Which we know, like the Stanley is right off the highway. Like it's not up in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) No, I mean, they shot... All of that multiple places. Yeah. It's Oregon and Montana and England. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, but I mean, there is, it is still like that, that opening sequence of the drive up gives you a sense of how far in off the highway they are. Yeah. And in 1980, the, the I-70 through the mountains would have kind of just been finished. Like it had been worked on for decades. Mm-hmm. And the Eisenhower Tunnel, I think, was finished in the 70s. So it was a relatively new it was relatively new that you, there was an easy way to get through the mountains. And this is my dad knows all these <laughs> sorts of facts. But yeah, so 
Oh, and I, you know what I re- remember? I think we had Thanksgiving once at the Stanley because they do a thank of Thanksgiving. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. You can go up there. So, yeah. So it's this. And I lived in Boulder for a while. Like, there's a Colorado connection for sure, which I had forgotten about. But the main thing that struck me and the main reason I was just like all of a sudden really gaga for this movie was I didn't realize how much it is an exploration of masculinity of patriarchy oh yeah and specifically of like the performative nature of masculinity to to a particular generation of men and maybe all men before them i don't know but like our (laughs) dad's generation and like the generation like our grandparents generation it really really hit home this time around but the scene that hit me hard about that is with with jack nicholson and, and the the hotel owner and the manager in the office just talking men stuff yeah talking white men who are in charge kind of stuff and there's like a politeness and there's a manner of speaking that's very performative yeah he has a behavior in a way about him that is so familiar there's there's a there's a way he's talking to the bartender there's a way he's talking to the waiter there's a way he's talking to his own boss mm-hmm. that's yeah. just he's playing the part that he knows he's supposed to be playing of you know the sort of genteel guy or whatever like hey i'll 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 take care of it for you cracking little jokes whatever you know yeah. but they're all un- there's an understanding among all of them that's unsaid and i think yeah exactly like his responsibility to his employer as he says at a certain point is he decides that that is the most important thing Mm -hmm. that his job is the most important thing. There's just something there uh, that that's actually kind of weak. And, and the way he does, he plays the part in this heightened kind of manner. It almost adds like a satirical element where he's making fun of that. Yeah. And Kubrick 100% knew he was being funny in certain things. Like I, yeah, there's even like a moment you know, when he's on his tirade where he's like, can you even fathom the responsibility that I have and all of that? It's just just a heightened version of something that's very real and familiar. Yeah. This sort of entitled thing that white men have had for a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's just sort of like, it still is around, but it's sort of understood that that's not actually acceptable anymore. You know, mm-hmm. it, it Outside of certain circles, you know, I don't know what happens behind closed doors among men in corridors of power. I imagine it's probably still pretty similar. But, you know, part of it is he's playing that part. He's playing the part of the guy who wants to get ahead, who wants to be thought of as, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, you can you can hobnob with these important people, you know. Yeah, that kind of patriarchy, it, it plays upon insecurities yeah. in these men. It like it senses something there. Yeah, this an emptiness and a well. These are the ways that I address that emptiness. Like yeah. this, these are the. This is how I not sit in the discomfort of my anxieties. Right. These are the things that I do. Right. To be a man and to contribute and to take on my responsibilities, etc. Right. Like, what is expected of me? In yeah, and and place. his ego is just fueling all of that. Oh, yeah. You know, and the he- ego is heightened also because of that insecurity and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's that up against. Shelley Duvall's incredible performance. Yeah, she's really she's really terrific in it. Yeah. For the longest time, the read on her performance was that she was annoying or that she was an annoying character and the performance was too, quote unquote, hysterical. It was yeah. too, like, she was too cryy, too emotional. Mm-hmm. And 
I think with time, you watch that now and you're like, no, she wasn't that way at all. She just wasn't a stone-faced badass, which is mm. in some ways what we were used to yeah. in the in the ensuing years mm-hmm. with Ellen Ripley and Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2. You know, like the pendulum swung entirely in the other direction in the 80s. So this film that's from 1980, I feel like, I don't know, people were just not honest with themselves maybe about how they would react in that scenario. Yeah. And yeah, now you watch it and you're like, wow, her performance is incredible. Like she's so naturalistic and nuanced. It's perfect because what it shows, because what I get from it is I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to have to hit you with a bat. I don't want to have to protect myself. It shouldn't be this way. We're, we're, we're married. We're a family. Yeah. That's even thing. up to that point, she like when she he says, "Do you care about me?" She's like, "Of course I do. Of course I'm concerned." Yeah. I don't think it's a lie. Like she's like, she "What is him. going on with yeah. my husband?" Not only is he he's an alcoholic, and we're working on that, but now he's being you know influenced by something. Yeah. Something is beyond you, is going on. You want to give the person you love the benefit of the doubt. You want to believe there is hope for them. Yeah. You know, when you see someone that you love in addiction alone, even without all the other stuff, right, right, it's like, fuck. Yeah. It's devastating. Mm-hmm. And it's heartbreaking. And it's not just one clean emotion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. So Not at all. And that's what you see in her. Is yeah. She's struggling with so many different feelings yeah. about what's going on. And she does such a great job of conveying that. Yeah. And yeah. she doesn't, when she locks him in that pantry, a cold room, whatever it is, mm-hmm. she's just, it's like, I can't believe I just did that. Maybe I shouldn't do that. No, I have to do this. You know, I mean, yeah. all the like, just all this, like, so many different things going on. I have to grab this knife now. I can't believe I have to grab this knife, but I yeah. do because yeah. this is this is the point we're at. You know, but I also I have to go protect my son. I have to yeah. go do it. Yeah, when she when she cuts his hand too. Yeah. Even in that moment, there's this note of holy shit! I just did that. Yeah. You know, it's not just that she's scared of him. After she cuts his hand, she's also like. That was another trauma for her. Just yeah. that like, oh, I just hurt someone I love. Yeah. People are unsympathetic to the abused wife. Yeah. I, I don't understand that. I don't understand that at all. Like this yeah. is a person who who is traumatized and this is this is what they know to do to try to make it better. Yeah. You know, is to is to keep rationalizing and keep in it and keep trying. And she got to the point where she, she couldn't try it anymore. You know, she couldn't, it, it, somebody's coming at you with an axe. Probably it's about time to stop trying. <laughs> yeah, this is probably the line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is the moment where you got to turn around, I think. Yeah. And honestly, if anything, you know, now when you watch it, it's almost like Nicholson's performance is the one that seems silly. And it's, I mean, it's still good. It does. But I, I do think that that idea that, I think that that idea that he, he is being deliberately heightened and performative yeah. makes a lot of sense it, to me. Yeah. And it makes it, maybe silly is the point of it, you know? Yeah. Well, this is the thing. The hotel, let's, if we're assuming that the hotel is an entity or that the ghosts in the hotel together are some sort of entity together, mm-hmm. they call him weak. Yeah, they yeah. say your wife is stronger than we thought. She's yeah. more resourceful, and yeah. it's true. I think people complain that, like, or that was what Stephen King's complaint was, right? That he's already crazy by the time he gets there. Like the house doesn't make him go crazy, and it's like that has to happen. Yeah, because the hotel goes, oh, here's a guy we can get to. Here's yeah. a guy we can manipulate and control because he is weak. Because he is like 
Well, he's insecure. Insecure, unstable, whatever. He's invested in this... Egotistical. He's invested in this institution of manhood. Yes. That carries these virtues. Yeah. And dismisses anxieties. Yeah. And yeah, he's he never had a chance yeah. in that way. And it, the fact that it happens what, within a month of them being there, it's like he, he had to have been on the verge mm-hmm. for it to happen in a month. Mm-hmm. You know? And the only time we see that as judged is I love the scene where Wendy is talking to the doctor and she's oh, saying yeah. the thing that ha- she's telling about the incident yeah. of abuse. Yeah. And she's like, and he hasn't t- touched a drop and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then it cuts back to the doctor and her face is yeah. just like, she knows. Yeah. And she's just like, fuck yeah. you. Because <laughs> you can tell his sobriety is not. It's, it's not that it's precarious. It's he's kind of doing it for the wrong reasons, maybe. Yeah, and this is that's the whole. I mean, that gets into that whole like you can't help someone that doesn't want to be helped, yeah. or or you know, conditional abstinence or whatever, yeah. like bargaining. Mm-hmm. You get into a lot of which he does. He does all that. Yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah. But I think the hotel represents that. It's the edifice of that kind of masculinity mm. that. Aside from his addiction, aside from whatever, like, which is, I mean, it's not really aside from his addiction. This stuff is always all it's tied all wrapped up. up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. But it's it's representational of like that as an institution. Because mm-hmm. even picking a film to go with The Shining yeah. was so difficult. Mm-hmm. And like I wanted, my first most obvious choice was The Haunting, 1963, mm. Robert Wise. But you had already seen it. We've I've seen it. You and I, we love it. We yeah. watch it a lot. Like, for me, we watch it a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. We watch it at least once a year. That's probably the the, the horror movie I've seen the most. Really? In my life. Okay. Yeah. Now that we've seen it like four times. <laughs> yeah. It's one of my favorite movies it's of great. all time. I love it. It's great. And it, and it has a lot in common with The Shining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's sort of like the gender role reversed mm-hmm. Shining in a way, and uh, I mean, it's Shirley Jackson. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's amazing. That one genuinely scares me more than The Shining, honestly. Because, really? Because how, it's just what's going on in her head. I relate to her so much. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That that idea that her own mind is like working against her and yeah. the house is working with her. You know, all, all yeah. this, stuff, it's all like. Well, but, and it's working off the same principles. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The way that the ho- the hotel is kind of seducing jack right it's seducing her through this well you don't really feel like you have a home you don't feel like anyone understands you yeah we understand you there's room for you here and it's it's, the difference is i'm not an alcoholic abusive (laughs) dad but i am like maybe a little eccentric yeah frail lady maybe (laughs) well she's (laughs) no sin is sensitivity yeah Yeah. and that's it yeah and you as a sensitive person can relate to that Mm -hmm. and i as a sensitive person can relate to that right like but it, you've seen it, yeah. so it's not. It's it breaks the rules. It couldn't be the pairing. Okay, and it's also a, clearly an inspiration for The Shining. Yeah. And so I, then I started thinking about other inspirations for The Shining, uh, burnt offerings, uh, fall of the House of Usher. But ultimately, I mean, it came down to a coin toss because I couldn't decide between burnt offerings and the Haunted Palace. Mm-hmm. It came down to those two, and what I kept debating because the big thing about The Shining is. For programming purposes, you don't want to follow it up with another long, heavy, <laughs> like thematic, genuinely scary movie. Yeah. And so 
as much as Burnt Offerings has in common with it, I mean, it would be a great double feature of like, hey, family that's already maybe in trouble, house sits a, a hotel, and hijinks ensue. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, yes, there were hijinks. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing. And I think we should at some point, maybe oh. as another episode, watch Burnt Offerings and talk about it, because I'm definitely curious. Because I think that's another one that's like sort of has crossover appeal okay. with its cast and its and its prestige. And I think you could watch it and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what you would say about it. But immediately following The Shining, it's just too much. Yeah. And you want to give, after something like The Shining, you want to give people an opportunity for catharsis or like to let off the steam a little bit. Sure. And cleanse their palates. But also work within the same themes. And that's why The Haunted Palace was... And I hadn't seen either Burnt Offerings or Haunted Palace in a very long time. And all I could remember was, okay, Burnt Offerings, yeah, family, haunted house hotel house sitting it fits all that and then haunted palace it was like oh that's a guy that is turned evil by a house mm-hmm. and then we literally flipped a coin and haunted palace won and i'm glad it did yeah actually because, no i enjoyed it yeah so what was your experience with the haunted palace this is 1963 so same year even as as the haunting mm-hmm. uh, roger corman directed AIP produced part of the Poe cycle, but it's not a Poe film. Yeah, it's Lovecraft. It's Lovecraft. But what did you think of it? Well, initial impression. Yeah, I enjoyed it. In so many ways, it's the complete opposite of The Shining. <laughs> yeah, well, it was shot in 15 days yes. instead of 51 weeks. Yes. And it's got a runtime of 87 minutes. Perfect. By and the way, perfect runtime. And it's a fun time. Yeah. No, it's it's very enjoyable. It's a lot of entertainment. It's very straightforward. It's like classic gothic tale. I mean, this is a we. I don't know if listeners know this. We have a Vincent Price household. This is a household where we love uh, we, Vincent Price. We are we are a Vincent Price yeah fan yeah. fandom yeah. here. We like Vincent Price and Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. So of course, love that. And I really loved. Deborah Paget's performance. Deborah Paget, yeah, is incredible. She is yeah. so real. Yeah, like she's... her reactions to the insanity that's going on is so genuine and real and subtle in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, this you film know? is like it's almost like a subtle version of The Shining in that way. Yeah, and her performance is a much. It's it's got a lot in common with Shelley Duvall. Yeah, character wise. Yeah, when you, the whole thing is filled with great actors. Yeah. So all the performances are really, really solid. Yep. And there's. Basically all men except the wife. Well, you know? and the the sexy corpse lady. Oh, sure, of course. That's another thing both films have in common yeah, is a sexy yeah. corpse lady. Well, and the woman at the beginning who's being sacrificed or whatever. Well, that's, yeah, the brainwashed blonde lady. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's opposite, but then it's also similar because it's like most, it's all sets. It's all giant, mm-hmm. giant sets, which yeah. I didn't know The Shining was sets in a, in a soundstage. Oh, but yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Except for... Pickups in the bar scene, which is at the Legion Post in Hollywood. Okay. Which is a great movie theater venue. And obviously exteriors, some some of it and, and that. But it's just it's just shot in a very seemingly traditional mm-hmm. manner. And when we were watching the sort of, you know, Roger Corman talking about how he made it, it's like, wow, there's a level of skill that both he and Kubrick have. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. To be able to either work extremely fast or extremely slow. Yeah. Like both of those things, there's a different variety of skills, but they're both obviously incredible filmmakers. It's, yeah, they're both incredibly talented cinematic craftsmen. 
Kubrick and Corman both. It's just that Corman is kind of just, he's about quantity. Yeah. And it's just not put it out, put it out, put it out, put it out. But because he's so good at it, the quality doesn't really suffer ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he just works on all of this. He's just prolific. Whereas Kubrick, notoriously not very prolific for a, for a filmmaker as celebrated as he is. Yeah. And takes forever. And just, he's indulgent. Yeah. That's the difference. Well, you know, I can understand. I like the take that, you know, the reason he does 100 takes or whatever it is, is because that's how he finds what he wants. Like, he can't see it in his mind. He finds it in the process. And, of course, that is horrendous for everybody involved (laughs) to have to do that, I'm sure. But the results are really great. Now, I would never personally ever want to work on a Kubrick movie in any yeah. capacity. Well, thankfully you won't have to. No. But I just mean like I can see I can I like that take rather than oh he's just evil and mean and just does this, you know, or whatever whatever else, but it's like no, he's there's a there's yeah. a pro, there's a reason he's doing this. The stuff about Kubrick is very overblown. The whole and especially The Shining, the whole thing about it, he broke Shelley Duvall. Yeah. He was an abusive narcissist monster. Okay, he might be an abusive narcissist for sure he might have been but it's an overblown myth yeah she's fine <laughs> shelly duvall is fine like she she created fairy tale theater uh, that was seminal to my childhood that was yeah. like those movies at blockbuster were some of my i mean i watched the frog prince with robin williams it must have been a hundred times when i was a yeah. kid i loved those movies they're great yeah she's she's brilliant and she i mean sure she notoriously hasn't acted in a while she's coming back in a horror movie this year hey you know some you don't have to act your whole life exactly well, I mean, <laughs> De- fucking deborah paget retired after haunted palace that was her last feature film role sure just because she was just ah, i'm good yeah i got married i'm gonna i'm gonna be a mom now i'm done yeah i mean that's again there's misogyny in the industry there yeah but of course. yeah she also was just like done and she left a great performance shelly duvall this story that she was just i don't know whatever i don't want to get into it but it is one of those things where she herself was like, no, I'm not an idiot. I knew what Kubrick was doing. Yeah. He was pushing me hard to get this specific type of performance. And she's like, in the end, it worked. Mm-hmm. Like, sure, I didn't have a great time. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't think so. But I was dedicated to the role. I knew what I was doing. I knew what I was getting into. And I'm not... And like a lot of the stories about uh, Shelley Duvall was abused. Like it kind of, in a way undermines her agency yeah absolutely and it feels kind of gross when that story gets passed around to me because it's like no she's she was an adult she's making choices i mean she may be at an emotional state that is extreme because of the circumstances of the filming well and the circumstances in her life at the time were also not great sure but it's not as though she's not making choices in that yeah. within that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. She's she's an actress. That's yeah. This is what actors do. Right. They channel personal experience. Absolutely. And the difference is too is that Corman, for example, with Price, would just meet with him for a little bit before shooting and be <laughs> like, "Let's talk about the character a little bit." Okay. Mm-hmm. Is this where you see the character going? Okay. Good. Now we're good, and we just shoot. Yeah. He knew Which what he wanted. Which makes sense for the kind of movie he was making. It was, it yeah. was, a, it was a like Price had done yeah. tons of those kinds of movies, so it's not like you're reinventing the wheel. You I know? think the difference between the two is sort of that difference between Hoffman and Olivier. When you hear, I don't know if you've heard the oh, story yeah, yeah, about yeah, yeah, Marathon sure. Man, when he says, yeah. have, you, "Have you tried acting, my yeah. boy?" Like it's that, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. the difference. Whereas Kubrick is part of that, you know, tortured auteur nonsense yeah. of like, oh, I gotta, 
this is how I do it. This well, this is, is why, madness, I mean, I have you know? a degree in acting yeah. and this is why I don't act because I'm like, I'm, I don't want to do that. Well, yeah, I don't want <laughs> to wor- like, like delve into myself to bring out these emotional yeah. performances. Yeah. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, you should you know? be in a Corman movie then. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, if they were still <laughs> Just, making those kinds yeah. of movies, I'd be fine with that, yeah. you know? Um, no, I really liked it. You know what I obsessed over was the painting. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting an art history minor currently in yeah. grad school and it immediately made me go wait what year did this was this painted <laughs> and it was painted in like 1765 somewhere around yeah. there and that would have been like a like rococo slash neoclassical and the first the painter that i imagine they were going after is gainsborough who did uh, the blue boy which is that very famous huh. painting at the huntington gardens very, very famous painting. And it does have like a spooky kind of background a little bit. So I could see that. Oh, wow. But it lo- the painting kind of looks like somebody trying to make a Gainsborough who like was just like a, a Greenwich Village painter, you know, in the late 50s, <laughs> 60s. Well, who's, that's also... who's much more influenced by Picasso or something. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating because the Corman movies of the, the Corman period pieces, specifically the Corman Poe cycle, yeah. of which this film is part, is kind of like... Of the time of Poe, mm. you know, but but, 60s. but Greenwich Village, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but sixties beatnik, like mm. that's very much what the Corman Poe movies are in a lot of ways. Yeah. So yeah, that's very fitting. Yeah, because I mean, the hair and makeup was just like, oh, well, this is this is nineteen sixty three to a T. There's, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing either eighteenth or nineteenth yeah, century no vic- about nothing any Victorian of this. accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her hair would not be down at all oh yeah like that's just insane like even when she was sleeping maybe but like just walking around i also love that you have all these like character actors who and i just love another thing i love about corman is because he didn't get stars he got i mean he got one star vincent price right and then it was now now fill the cast up with people that are kind of on their way out and not in favor with hollywood so they're cheap and then yeah journeyman character tv actors who never get to say more than four lines yeah and we'll give them more more leading roles because that's cheaper. And you end up getting this really interesting yeah. result. And yeah, all those guys, they're playing these like Victorian era, New England, seaside townspeople. townspeople. But they're all character actors from like television westerns. Yeah. So they all have this weird like swagger to them too. Yeah. it's it, I love it. Yeah, it's odd, but I, yeah, it works. That, that is true of a lot of, that era of historical film fiction is just yeah. like, what era are we supposed to be in? Because mm-hmm. there's also no, there's no attempt to have any sort of mannerisms of that era. You know, there's particular ways that people walked and talked and, mm-hmm. and all of that, that you, you learn if you are a trained, you know, truly a trained actor, you can learn all of that stuff. Like, and it's just not really. <laughs> they just don't care. It's just kind of Which there. I think it's like, I don't know, it. just act kind of upper class or something. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that the positive spin on that is, yeah, the result is it's timeless. Yeah, sure. <laughs> because it doesn't it bother be, me. Yeah. It's just they, they they tend to have like a, a bit of a miasma around like mm-hmm. what era are we in exactly? Yeah. Well, miasma is a good word too because it's Lovecraft. Yeah. And the idea there is that this you know that you have a cursed thing and this was big in cosmic horror and then it it corrupts the area around it. Mm. It, it creates a miasmatic. Yeah. Environment. Well, that's that's Arkham. And so right? you get Arkham. Yeah. The, this town where all of these people might as well be malevolent spirits. Mm. They all are. I mean, it's the same actors that played them 
from the 100 years prologue playing them now. So they might as well be ghosts. Yeah. And they all feel very ghostly yeah. in that way. And so it's Arkham is the overlook. Mm. And the haunted palace that... So what this is, the story is, Vincent Price plays Charles Dexter Ward because this is based on the Lovecraft novella, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, mm -hmm. given a Poe title, which is has an interesting connection to The Shining too, I think. Because there's really nothing haunted going no, on. No, it's... Yeah, the idea is that... Because The Haunted Palace... Okay. It was originally a Poe poem that was published in like 18... I think 30-something. Mm -hmm. But then it was reappropriated in the story The Fall of the House of Usher, where Roderick Usher has this song, this poem that he called The Haunted Palace. Yeah. And The Haunted Palace in that story is, is employed as a device mm. to serve as a metaphor for Roderick Usher's deteriorating mental state. Like, he is going mad, much in the way that Jack Torrance is going mad in The Shining. Right. And so in that way, it has this Poe element to it there. Hmm. But the, yeah, even in its like most famous use, The Haunted Palace is a metaphor. Right, right. So anyway, Charles Dexter Ward and his wife, Anne, are going to Arkham, Massachusetts to go to the house that he has inherited from 100 years before the the warlock that lived there was up to shenanigans you know, doing warlock warlocks. stuff yeah and the townspeople killed him in a very black sunday scene and now he's here 100 years later inheriting this mansion checking it out and the townspeople are like oh fuck you it's haunted we hate you because your ancestor was a warlock that did shady things right and then he slowly is going insane because the well, it's, well, it's like coming and going, yeah. right? It's like here, it's gets he's hold, he's got him, and then he doesn't have yeah. him. Yeah, and the, yeah, because the device here isn't that he's losing his mind; it's that he is being literally possessed right. by the spirit of Joseph Kerwin, his warlock ancestor. And there's a it, the painting is seems to seems be to be like the catalyst. Yeah, 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 something. Yeah, but what this has in common with The Shining the most for me, I guess, why ultimately it's I think it's the great pick is that. That idea, again, of like man's work, mm -hmm. because he's being possessed by his ancestor to complete right. his ancestor's work. Right. And we get Simon, the caretaker of the house, mm -hmm. who is our, he's Grady. He's fucking Grady. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lon Chaney Jr. is Grady. And you, you brought up an interesting connection to, between Lon Chaney and Stanley Kubrick. Lon Chaney Jr., I should specify. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, in, in Full Metal Jacket, this is, again, from Blank Check. I believe what happened was Vincent D'Onofrio was kind of, had chosen to kind of base his character maybe physically and, like, the idea of the big hulking guy yeah. who's also very gentle after Lon Chaney Jr. And at a certain point, Kubrick said hey i was thinking this is kind of a lon cheney feeling and they were like oh yeah like they they both came to it <laughs> separately but agreed on it that like it, gomer pile right is his character's name and or is his, his nickname Pri private pile yeah, yeah 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 that that was what the character should be is this yeah. giant hulking like kind of baby man <laughs> yeah which is and it's funny because he, in that movie full metal jacket vincent d'onofrio has this like great what they call the kubrick stare mm -hmm, moment mm-hmm this convention where in Stanley Kubrick movies a character and it's in a lot of I mean it, it was in, it's in Psycho yeah. it's in Psycho it's in a bunch of non-Kubrick movies oh, but sure. it's yeah, definitely yeah. in The Shining yeah. of you know the tilting the camera at away with the actors headed away so that they're looking out from under their their brows mm -hmm. and it it looks you know 
menacing. Oh, and, yeah. And it's used to convey a character losing their mind. And you get that with that great moment in Full Metal Jacket with him. And in this film, Lon Chaney Jr., who is this big, hulking, gentle baby, mm-hmm. is used in like four jump scares or something. Yeah, that's and true. And very effectively. Yeah. Like, and, and he, he doesn't even, he's just, he's just flat faced. Yeah. But just his presence is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> and he, it might be his scary. I mean, this is the guy who played the Wolfman. Yeah. He's, as far as I'm recalling, he's the only actor to have played all of the major universal monsters, barring the creature from the Black Lagoon and, and the Invisible Man. And the Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. And the Bride of Frankenstein, who was only in one movie. But he played the mummy, the Wolfman, Frankenstein's monster, and Count Dracula. Yeah. And he's scarier in this than he is in any of those. You think? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I suppose, yeah. In the other ones, he... Look, in The Wolfman, he he wants to be Larry. Yeah. He doesn't want to be the Wolfman. He doesn't want to be the Wolfman. <laughs> yeah. Here, he wants to be the monster. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Know? He's all about it. So, but the... <laughs> this is all to say... You know, Vincent Price has a good, not quite Kubrick stare. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. Sure. But what it turns out is they're trying to launch Haney uh, as Simon and... Milton Parsons as Jabez, who I, every time he says that, I think he's saying Jarvis. <laughs> but they're his sorcerer buddies. Yeah, sure. And now that he's possessed his descendant, they're going to complete their source. Well, they're going to, it's, there's a lot of steps here. Yeah. First, they have, all three have to have the same green hue of skin. <laughs> yeah, they all have green skin. And then, and now we can move forward. Yeah. And then they're trying to resurrect the last sorcerer buddy. Well, a witch, who's Hester. Oh, sure. His, the sexy corpse lady. Yes. Joseph Kerwin's mistress. Yeah. And they got to resurrect her so then they can finish the project, mm-hmm. which I love that they call it a project. Yeah. Much in the same way that in The Shining, Grady's like, the business we discussed earlier, mm-hmm. you know, it's that thing again. Mm-hmm. So their goal is to, they're all coming back to life and then they're going to do a ritual that brings forth an old god, mm-hmm. very Lovecraft. But even in that stuff, he's talking about a project and alluding to a boss. Like he's talking about someone who expects something from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a a higher up. There's a supervisor. Right. He says, I just serve or whatever. I just serve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they keep saying, we obey. Yeah. We obey. obey, yeah. In that way that it is in The Shining as well, Mm -hmm. I mean, more specifically here, I think it Maybe this is a stretch, but it seems like an idea of the banality of evil and a reference to that idea of I was just following orders. Yeah, yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. And it is. It's This is what's expected of me. I'm just doing my job, man. Mm -hmm. It's that idea of like removing your will from the evil work. Right. The important thing is that I take up this responsibility that's been given to me. That's the important thing. It's, It's more important than... (laughs) <laughs> which is funny because he tells you do you have any concept of ethics or whatever <laughs> yeah. it's like you know the ethical thing might be to not do what your boss is telling you to do your your your, your mansion ghost boss <laughs> yeah but that's the thing is it makes you a cog in a in a machine yeah and then proud of being a cog yeah like it's removing your conscience from the awful thing you're doing and in The Shining, we never really know what that is. In fact, in The Shining, it seems more like it's a comment on capitalism because it seems like it's just there to sustain the overlook. Right. What is the point of this act of killing? I'm guessing that the, the killing itself fuels the, the hotel in some way. Yeah. And that's it. That's all. It just wants to keep living. Yeah. It does, or, you know, quote unquote living. It yeah. doesn't. It's just to perpetuate yeah, yeah, its yeah. own machinery. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in 
the haunted palaces to bring back the old ones, you know, Cthulhu or whoever yeah. is coming back. But yeah, I don't know. That's that's what I really clung to with the haunted palace. That that and it's it's really like The Shining. It feels huge. It's probably a lot going on. Yeah. 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 Story wise, it yeah. has more going on, I think, than any of the other Corman Poe movies. I mean, mm-hmm. not counting Tales of Terror, possibly, which is an anthology, but. There are more moving pieces to the story and the plotting. It also really builds mm-hmm. similarly. Like there's rumblings. The way that the townsfolk get to the point where they're then going to burn down the palace is it, even when they get there, they have to make the decision, oh, we'll smoke them out. They didn't immediately decide that they were going to burn it down. Yeah. There's, there's a lot that has to happen to get to that point. And then when it gets to that point, it's kind of it's an extreme point yeah. that they've gotten to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I was going to say too is when Vincent Price is possessed, he's a much harder, more sort of alpha male kind of guy. Yeah. And and he's mean to her and he treats her in a dictatorial way and says, you know, you do this, you do that or whatever, similarly to Jack in The Shining, and it's like there is a feeling that this behavior is acceptable and justified that you as the man need to and are allowed to speak this way to your wife and if you don't like charles vincent price says charles is kind of a simp then you know it's yeah, like he's a you, cuck. you yeah. love your wife what is that you yeah. know <laughs> like, yeah how dare you yeah that seems gross or man something. up yeah yeah where's yeah. your balls right Chuck. Right. yeah yeah this yeah. just it's just so i like that that is the evil version mm-hmm. of them you know well and it's with Price specifically, it's interesting because, you know, he was in a lot of Poe movies for Corman. Hmm. And he was in, you know, William Castle movies where he was playing this kind of like devious husband. Oh, man. House of Haunted Hill. Yeah. 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 But in this film, it's like he's not channeling one of those performances. It's like he's doing Dragon Wick again. Hmm. The Mankiewicz film, which is... It's way more straightforward. It's way more like grounded, realistic evil. Hmm. And that's what he feels like in this movie. He feels like his character in Dragonwick. And in the same way that The Shining, you know, is is very grounded in that way. And it's about, you know, you can see this behavior in men you know. Yes, sure. And like in The Shining, I think there's a hint of that before anything supernatural happens. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Vincent Price, Charles Dexter Ward is, you know, as, as much of a simp as... Kerwin might think he is he starts this movie kind of being shitty to his wife and being rude to the people they meet in this town well yeah he comes to the town like the, the when he says whatever it was like what should i do just tear up the deed and not like cash in on this yeah. inheritance like pfft. like that sounds insane to a sort of aspiring capitalist yeah well and it's the behavior of these people might seem weird and maybe even a little threatening but he's like instantly dismissive of it and it's not just that, like, yeah, that capitalism thing. There's, like, a regionalism to it yeah, where he's yeah. like, that's what I love about you New Englanders. You're yeah. so friendly. And it's like, motherfucker, <laughs> you're in their town. He even has that line to Anne when she looks at the, when they see the, the tavern and the sign says Burning Man Tavern. Mm-hmm. And she says, she thinks it's kind of cute. She thinks it's fun. She says quaint, I think. Mm-hmm. And Charles is like, yes, very quaint. It's like sarcastically. And it feels... The same as when Jack Nicholson says, you see, it's fine. He saw it on television. (laughs) 
Like it's that same <laughs> moment where you're like, oh, you kind of suck. Yeah. You're kind of a shithead already. Yeah. It's and and this is I don't mean to get too personal, but there are, there are moments in The Shining when Jack Nicholson reminds me of my dad. It's not like my dad's not a uh, crazy alcoholic at all, but there is a type of masculinity. There's a type of fatherhood and, and husbandhood, if that's a word, mm-hmm. that's sort of like, I'm allowed to be shitty to you. Yeah. Like in those little snippet kind of moments. And I don't, I, this is not true of my dad now, but certainly when he was married and younger, he played that role of, I get to say this shit. I think, yeah, I was going to say, I think anybody with a baby boomer dad, yeah. there's behavior in, jack torrance that you can see in your father and i think that's i mean that's intentional it's that that thing we were talking about where king is like well you, you know it needs to turn evil and it's like no the evil was already there yeah and the evil is this fragility well and has. like you said the evil is banal the evil it's not evil is even a strong word for what it is yeah. it's yeah, just yeah. this socially accepted yeah. way of being i shouldn't say the evil the potential for harm yeah 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 the uh, the 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 promise the, the, of, my ego and what i have going on is more important than your feelings yeah yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's the fucking patriarchy. Yeah, and you see that in him, the same way you see it in Charles Dexter Ward. Yeah, like that scene where he's even though he's possessed by Kerwin, he's like, "You want some wine?" And she's like, "I don't want any." And he just pours it for her and gives it to her and says, "Men are talking, basically." <laughs> yeah, and it's like, oh, he doesn't even have to be possessed to do that because my dad has done that. Yeah, maybe not to that degree. I will say that I do think in the haunted palace. The line of good and evil, like who is good, who is evil, is clearer. Mm-hmm. Or it's more of a morality story than The Shining. Which maybe, as you say, when you put it at the end of your double feature, it is a palate cleanser. Because it's like, oh, okay, good and evil, very clear. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. it's, it's clearer. It's not completely clear, but it's like, okay, I'm probably not going to get possessed by my ancestor who was, uh, you know, Lovecraftian. Yeah, whatever. well, it's sort of like when you're programming a double feature like this, you want to make sure that the movie that somebody can fall asleep after <laughs> yeah. is going second. <laughs> that's a good one. You know, because really if it's playing the late slot, yeah. it's like, well, you got to drive home from the drive-thru yeah. and, you know, pay the babysitter. <laughs> and then, you know, then, okay, now can you go to bed? Or is that movie still in your brain? Yeah. But there are moments where it's as you know it's clearer because it's a possession story yes as opposed to like oh he's just being turned slowly right it's like it's like yeah you're turning a switch on or off depending on whether he's possessed or not because it's sympathetic to charles dexter ward in a way that it is not sympathetic to joseph Kerwin, but in jack torrance there's no divide there yeah 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 so you you are asked to be sympathetic towards him at least once because again when king wrote the novel and that's another thing these two movies have in common is they're they're both taking creative liberties with their source text. Sure. And I guarantee you, Poe and Lovecraft would not like oh, The no, Haunted Palace, no. much in the same way that Stephen King does not like Kubrick's The Shining. Right. But he was inspired because he he knew there was a violence in him with his kids specifically. He would feel himself losing his temper with his kids, and that scared him. Oh, uh, sure. So when he wrote this character of Jack Torrance, it wasn't just oh, what a monster he's beating his kids. It's like, no, this is something I'm scared of happening to me. I'm mm. scared of doing this. I'm, I know this potential exists with me and that's terrifying. So the movie, you know, I think it doesn't include most of that, but it does ask you to be sympathetic towards him a couple of times. The, the scene where he has the dream, when he wakes up from that nightmare of I killed... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I killed you and Danny in my yeah. dream. That's really, I think, the last moment in the film where you feel 
oh no, this poor guy. Yeah. He's just a guy. He can't help it. He never had a chance. Yeah. And you, there are times you see him fighting it. Of course, in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, you see him fighting it way more clearly and explicitly this, well, but the this ghost is the thing, says though. he's fighting. You don't see him fighting it because when he wakes up, he forgets. He forgets that, that he doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know what's going on. You know, each time he comes out of the, the trance, he doesn't he doesn't know that he's been fighting, it seems like. Because yeah. what you're getting is is Kerwin is saying he's fighting. Me, yeah. But then in the reality of the movie, he is waking up from that as Charles not realizing he had been fighting. But he, he is. We are being told that he is fighting. Like we don't see a struggle necessarily, except on occasionally on Vincent Price's face. But it's not mm-hmm. it's not as explicit, maybe. Yeah, well, they have that scene where he comes out of the possession and he's on the he's at the kitchen table. Yeah. And she comes to him and it's very much like Wendy coming to Jack yeah, after yeah, his yeah. nightmare. And her trying to say, let's just leave. We got to leave. And him being like, I can't because mm. I don't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. I can't go. Yeah. And I don't know why. But I don't know. It's interesting, too, because <laughs> maybe you're not supposed to sympathize with him as much because that scene where she's like before that happens, where she's like, let's leave. He's like, I'm, I'm putting my foot down. We're not leaving. She, the way she reacts to him, Deborah Padgett is so great. Yeah. But the way she reacts to him in that scene is like... Oh, they've been through this before. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, she's yeah. immediately like yeah. trying to navigate his mood now. Yeah. Oh, that's that's the thing. I mean, both these women, that's what it is. They are in these situations where part of what they have to do is exactly that is navigate like where's he at today? Where's he at in this moment? You have to do this extra work. Work yeah. all the time, every mm-hmm. day. That's what their job is. Every day is to navigate their husbands. Yeah. Like seriously. You can just, and that's, there's something very real about that. So in a way, yeah, it's maybe just as unclear in the Haunted Palace as it is in The Shining, Yeah, you know, as far as like how far you're supposed to sympathize. Because here's the other thing, and this is what's really wild to me, is that of these two movies, the one with the bleaker ending is the haunted palace <laughs> yeah, yeah that's right by a mile yeah 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 evil evil is destroyed in some way in the, sh- the shining the shining yeah, yeah there's there's, there's a, a hero you know scatman crothers is a hero yeah. you know that i mean guy, it's tragic no, that he dies it's, that's it's the horrible. difference is that D- dick halloran in the shining dies whereas dr willett who is like the dick halloran figure yeah. in the haunted palace he lives yeah but here's a perfect example scatman crothers his character is this other version of masculinity, right? Mm -hmm. Where he's kind and protective, and he will travel all the way from fucking Florida to the middle of nowhere, Colorado, in one day because he's going to save a family, basically. And, like, that kind of, like, that's true, you know, if you want to talk about, like, you know, man up or whatever, whatever kind of thing you want to talk about, this is, like, this is what a good man would do, you know? And he is that. And, yes, he gets killed by... As you would say, the representation of patriarchy. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. It's the good, the bad man kills the good man. And it's in a really heartbreaking way. And it's after you see this guy do so much. There are so many moments of him trying to get out there where I would have been like, no, I'm good. I'm staying. Yeah, the the effort it takes for him to get out there. The effort it takes, the things he has to do, he goes through so much to get there. And then, nope. And I mean, in the Haunted Palace, Doc Willett, the character of Doc Willett, played by Frank Maxwell, he is sort of the like good man figure yeah, here. Yeah. He's he's not 
scared the way the other townspeople are yeah. in the same way that Dick Halloran is not scared of the hotel. He's been in that hotel. He's, I mean, obviously the hotel is not as active when, when there's people in there apart from just one family. But he's been in there, he worked at that hotel long enough, presumably, with his shining on to kind of understand, as he tells Danny, like something's, yeah. something's going on here. But the hotel can't get to him. You know, the yeah. co- hotel doesn't affect him. Yeah. Because he's not... Because he's not vulnerable like, to it. Like yeah. Jack is, yeah. Yeah, kind of like Joseph can't possess the doc because he's not related to him. Yeah. In the same way that Dick Halloran has that thing about, like, well, you know, buildings are sometimes like people. Yeah. And they have, you know, it's, it's, so it's pictures in a book. It's memories, you yeah. know. It's very similar to how Doc Willett says, this town is haunted. It's yeah. haunted by grief mm. and fear. And so, like, he's even stating the metaphor yeah. <laughs> in the same way that, Dick Halloran is. So aside from the difference there, their their characters' fates, in The Shining, it more or less punishes Jack Torrance, mm-hmm. the ending. Yeah. But maybe it's even more bleak, actually, because it's like, well, we, we killed the one guy, but that institution, that edifice of, of masculinity and the, the damage it can do is still standing there. Yeah. And someone else is just going to come in and caretake well, it. Well, and the way that they're able to just sweep Grady's murder kind of under the rug... Yeah. Not even under the rug. Just be like, well, that happened. Yeah, but hey, what are we going to do? We have to, this building has to continue. Yeah, there's money to be made. They're not going to shut the place down, you know? And it's not just money. It's also that weird, masculine, ahistorical pride Mm. that Charles Dexter Ward, Joseph Kerwin, explicates in Haunted Palace, where he says that thing at the end where he's like, he talks about the celebrity past. He's like, so-and-so stayed here. Yeah. And the same way that, the the guy at the overlook at the beginning is like yeah you know the best of the best have been right, through here all right. of these it's got a celeb it's celebrity status yeah. and it's the same thing with the palace and the haunted palace yeah there's that weird tradition mm-hmm. idea to mm-hmm. it that keeps it just self propelling yeah and maybe this is going too far reading too much into it but the fact that the person that is killed is a black man probably means that like they're not gonna make a big deal out of it uh, yeah well and it's for sure making you aware of the racial element because there's an entire... I mean, how could you not think that when they two white male characters say the N-word to each other yeah. like four times in a row? Like just casual. Just casually, but also in that way of like, we're in the men's room, no oh, one yeah. can hear us, you know? Oh, yeah. We there's can say way- this here. It's safe to say this here. There are, so, there are th- at least three major moments where the men are talking to each other, the white men are talking to each other, and there's an understanding and even even yeah. Jack says white man's burden. Yeah, it's racial, but it is the the killing of Dick Halloran and the existence of Dick Halloran is racialized in this film. Yeah, explicitly, yeah. like it's it's a theme, which is a I think an interesting counterpoint to the Haunted Palace because Lovecraft was insidiously racist. <laughs> yeah, and that that's, there's even elements of the racial coding in Haunted Palace because it's that idea of like oh they were cursed and breeding with monsters or something yeah. like it's it's there is a, a weird example of his coded racial purity nonsense even in that movie in a way but in the shining it's like we're gonna point this out yeah right in, here. in a way the creation of the the quote-unquote mutant people <laughs> in the haunted palace is kind of like danny's shining where it's a supernatural-esque element that's kind of on the sideline of what's going on. You know, like in, a, in another movie, the mutant factor would be the main factor of the movie. 
or the shining of Danny's shining would be the main factor of the movie. But yeah. instead, it's just kind of a plot device. Yeah. It's just kind of a thing. I mean, it's interesting. Well, it's yeah, it's used to enrich the world. And it is used a little more than as a plot device because it, there's some thematic quality to it. Sure, too. and there's... I but just, it's not what the movie's about. Which is interesting that yeah. it's called The Shining and it's really not necessarily about The Shining itself. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's just one element of what's going on. You know, the, the townspeople are also kind of like the hedge maze or, you know, the blizzard, <laughs> sure. you know, they're sure. like the blizzard. They're the element that keeps them from, that keeps them trapped in the house more yeah. or less Yeah, is this surrounding townspeople. But they're also like the ghosts in the hotel. I think the townspeople in the Haunted Palace serve a lot of purposes. Sure. Because <laughs> again, it's Corman and he's like, well, we got to stretch our dollars here. Mm-hmm. How can we make the townspeople do a bunch of things? But it's also Charles Beaumont as a writer. You know, was a very talented economical writer mm. with a lot of experience by this point. And I mean, he's like the forebear to King. Like King was definitely inspired by Beaumont, Lovecraft, and Poe. Mm. So we got three like titans of horror from like three different generations yeah. in the Haunted Palace just like shoved all into that movie. Here's what I will say. The one, the one complaint I have about the Haunted Palace is it's clearly, let's say, eight to ten sets, right? There's a series of sets that have been created, mm-hmm. and you you feel it. You feel yeah. that oh, we're going back and forth between sets. Or yeah, we're, we're hitting the same beats inside these sets often. Like the looking at the painting happens like th- thirty times or something. Yeah, and I, I get that. But then of course you find you you realize that The Shining was a bunch of sets, and you kind of don't feel it, even though you are only going to like the kitchen, yeah, the foyer, their apartment, and the the gold room or whatever it is. It's a different thing entirely. Well, it comes down to Corman being, you know, the guy he is. And honestly, for Corman, the Haunted Palace feels a lot less like recycled sets. Oh, really? Than most of his Poe movies. Okay. Again, it's the biggest feeling Corman Poe movie, I think. Hmm. Not just story, but also the sets and the way it's shot. Floyd Crosby, the DP and cameraman, like, I think he was doing a lot similar to Alcott. Kubrick's cinematographer. He's doing a lot of like shooting around the foreground, like obscuring the backgrounds, like shooting behind things, even some overhead shots in this. Yeah. Do you know what it is? Maybe it's just that it's all very dark. It all kind of looks similar. Well, it's very dark, whereas The Shining is very bright. Yeah. Yeah. And the budget that Kubrick has for The Shining and the art department, the size of the art department he has, he can do a lot more and make it a lot more unified, whereas Corman is probably working with sets that he's reusing from yeah. other things. And he's only got basically Daniel Holler and whoever's on his crew. Well, and it's kind of because it's Poe slash Lovecraft, you want it to be dark. You want it yeah. to be gothic. You want it to be, you have that mood about it. Well, that's the know? other, so Corman's approach to this was because it wasn't really a Poe movie, he didn't want to make it as bright as his Poe movies or as mm. colorful as his Poe movies. So it's a lot more muted, a lot more straightforward and a lot darker and a lot mm. starker. Mm-hmm. But I think that with Floyd Crosby, Daniel Haller, and the score by Ronald Stein... Which is really good. They managed to make it feel huge yeah. compared to most of the Corman Poe movies. I think both of the scores... Oh yeah, the scores are incredible are in both of them. Completely yeah. different kinds of scores. Yeah, but this is both probably really, really add to the movie. This is probably Ronald Stein's best score, and The Shining. They're using there's there's a famous classical piece they're using 
mm. in the scoring there for one of the cues. Well, when they have the moment where there's shoom, boom, shoom, boom, like oh, the heartbeat it, stuff. The heart, and it, yeah. it, to me, it sounds like a record that's hit the end. It hasn't been like the needle's still hitting the the middle. It hasn't been taken off. Yeah, yeah. It slowed down yeah. or something. I wouldn't be surprised if it was that like affected. But it's just the menace of the music adds so it's, much. It's very to percussive. The film. It's very. It's got that percussive rhythmic yeah. quality to it of just like driving forward. You and know, that's the and thing, creating that tension. Yeah, the reason it's so scary is almost. It's so much due to the music plus the slowness mm -hmm. of the camera. Well, and the moments that it chooses not to use music. Yeah. The moments where it chooses to just be the diegetic sound of the scene. Like when Danny's riding around the hallways oh, and it's yeah. just the sound of that big wheel, you know, mm -hmm. and there's no music. And the, the moments where the camera chooses to be fast. Yeah. You know, like to break that slowness, that meditative yeah. quality, where especially when Nicholson is breaking down the door with the axe. Yeah. And it's just like... You know what I love too? In the maze at the end, because when you first see the maze when they're going through it, at the, you know, in the middle of the movie or whatever, those lights are at like hip level. And by the end, they're walking and the lights are at foot level and you, you realize how much snow has fallen. Oh, wow. That, yeah. That they're sort of... that It's like feet and feet of snow. Hadn't noticed that. Yeah, both it's, really great. Yeah, movies. both great movies. <laughs> you really, I think, I think you you were so worried about choosing this, yeah, this second was. movie, and I think I think it's great. I think it's a great choice. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you could have done any of the other ones you mentioned, and we would have had a, as rich of a conversation. I think there's a lot of horror movies around something happening in a giant building of some sort. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. yeah. a house or a mansion or a hotel or whatever, a palace. And I like the idea of the scrappy underdog one. Again, The Shining is huge because it's huge. It's yeah. a huge set. Haunted Palace feels huge because they knew how to use forced perspective yeah. and wide angle lenses in a certain way. It does feel and huge. You're right. Yeah. There's like an illusion. There's a magic trick quality to it. Mm -hmm. And I just, I like that. I want that. I They're always, both also giant, giant buildings that we only visit a few rooms in, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're fine with that, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, well, we don't need to see all the all the rooms, just the select few that are going to help tell the story. So you think this is a good double feature? Yeah, you, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, if you did if you did a night where you did The Shining, The Haunt Palace, The Haunting, and what was the other one we didn't watch? Burnt Offerings. Burnt Offerings. And you kind of, I don't know what the order would be. Yeah. But it would be a like a building-themed night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be fun. And then maybe some sort of comedy at the end for a fifth one or something. Yeah. Maybe Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Or sure. Ghost and Mr. Chicken. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Ghost yeah. and Mr. Chicken yeah. might be a good one. There you I go. Think, I think go, that might be fun. To share with these. With some of the like male fragility stuff that's in that movie yeah it might you know it's like this is the other end of that yeah interesting <laughs> house as man yeah a man that's so cowardly and yeah. so sensitive to the anxieties of masculinity that even the house doesn't know what to do with him <laughs> <laughs> but they also have in common this this new england connection i like is that so the shining is about new englanders going somewhere else <laughs> yeah sure and haunted sure. palace is about people from somewhere else going to new england yeah yeah and 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 as much as i'm saying there's a colorado connection in the shining you know somehow it also doesn't feel very colorado i don't know what people think colorado feels like i guess just breweries basically breweries and skiing mm -hmm. but it's the same thing with 
a lot of movies set in Colorado. You're just, it, it's just kind of generic. Well, there's also a lot of movies set in Colorado that aren't shot there. Exactly. Like, like the exactly. Black Phone. I remember watching that and just being like in the first five minutes, being like, that's not fucking Denver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the only movie that maybe has, that I've seen, I'm sure there's others that are like, oh man, that's that's Denver, that's Colorado, is about Schmidt. And it's only the half well, of the they, movie that's in Denver. They talk about Well, like Spear. Kathy Bates' house in About Schmidt is a very Denver yeah, house. I mean, yeah, that movie feels very Denver. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. Which I have not seen. Yeah, it's a very Denver movie. Okay. The Bluebird Theater's even in it. Okay. And Over the Edge. Oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Over that, the Edge absolutely, is, you're right. If you're from suburban you're Colorado, right. like a suburb up. of Denver, that is it, Over that the is, Edge is very recognizable. That is filmed in Greeley, Colorado, yeah. where I grew up. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the big Denver movies. Yeah. They also both have unhelpful bartenders. Yeah. Well, you know, depending on who you are, they might be helpful, you know. <laughs> they both feature a picture that the protagonist is in impossibly. Oh, sure. You know, sure. reaching from the past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a lot there. I, I see I see why you wanted to pair it. I, I like this, this, that I discussed this masculinity patriarchy idea and it was what you were thinking about the other movie you know there's a there's a reason you and i are living in the same house together yeah well until i go crazy when it starts snowing and i'm saying stuff like must i report my movements to you like a (laughs) schoolboy?" i mean unfortunately what happens is we both tend to go crazy yeah so that's a little worrisome well we should both start writing Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. <gasps> That's another thing they have in common. They both have like a cursed tome, yeah. a manuscript that signifies some great evil. That's true. Necronomicon in Haunted Palace, and mm-hmm. it's all Which, work and no play. Do you think that that's all he wrote? That's all he wrote, right? Yeah. He, he never mean, actually wrote anything. That is, that is all he wrote, and that yeah. is so fucking terrifying. Yes. Like, imagine reading Being Her and seeing like, what, I don't know, a thousand pages of yeah. just that. An entire ream of paper. Yeah. That is that is some cosmic horror type shit. Yeah, that is that is a voice from the depth. Yeah, yeah. And how much when he sat in front of that typewriter doing that? Is he aware of what he's doing? Is he channeling? Is he? Well, that's what writing is, man. <laughs> you sit down and the words just come. It's like not, I'm not speaking when I'm writing. Yeah. Something is speaking through me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did fair enough. Well, what we need to do is record another episode of the show, but like in the middle of February and see where we're at, Let's see where our that. mental state is. You know what we could do is we could watch Burnt Offerings then, because Burnt Offerings is the summer version of The Shining. Oh, that'd be nice. Because they're taking over a, a house for the summer, a hotel for the summer. Okay. Yeah. Let's yeah. revisit our talk about The Shining and Burnt Offerings. Okay. You know? Sure. Why not? Extra, extra credit. Sure. Extra, extra dread it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for having me. Do I have anything to plug? Is that what you want? <laughs> Yeah, do you have anything to your... (laughs) No. No, I'm getting a graduate degree. I'm no longer a podcaster. Well, you can listen to old episodes of These These Things Things Matter. Matter. Mm -hmm. I think it's still on Lipson. Including the one that I'm on. Potentially. I'm going to plug Andy's other podcast because it's really good. If you're not listening to Look Good for the Boys. (laughs) Thank you. I really love the Bram Stoker's Dracula Couples Help episode. And the Interview with the Vampire Couples Help episode. That's that's the other genre that of horror movie I can watch. I can watch slashers and I can watch vampire movies. Yeah. Pretty much no problem. Yeah, that's true. Those. That's true. Yep. But you can't watch the thing. No. No, that was the first there's like it was like I had a visceral reaction <laughs> yeah. of like no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is not happening. <laughs>
I really wanted to watch it because I really like the original and I really like Kurt Russell, but couldn't do it. I mean, I like movies. Yeah. I like I like consuming media. Well, thank you, Taylor Gonda. Thank you, Andy Sell. For being (laughs) on the show. I'll see you in like, I don't know when I'll stop seeing you, (laughs) to be honest. Now that sounds menacing. Class Class deceased. deceased.